You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Days and convicted. Blue party radio. Show King. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flips. Pod Awful. Dot net. Support for the Projection Booth Podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash Jay Scott of the Toronto Globe and Mail claims every so often the limits of screen acting are redefined and expanded. Harvey Keitel has given the kind of performance a generation is defined by. Uh, two young girls. Shot head twice each. I don't know if they're still wearing the rounds in that or what. Bruce Williamson of Playboy calls it a dark morality play with shock value to spare. Bad Lieutenant spells out themes of hypocrisy and sexual obsession with the intensity of a nightmare. Just put $120,000 on tomorrow's game. This guy will come by your house and blow your house up with your wife and kids and everybody in it. You know, Good. right? No one can kill me. I'm blessed. Jamie Bernard of the New York Post exults. Skillful and unforgettable, Keitel does some amazing work. There's nothing to think about. Either you put in my bed, or you get nothing. Roger Ebert of At The Movie says, Bad Lieutenant is my own choice as the best discovery of the Cannes Film Festival. Give us a break. You do something for me, and I'll do something for you. What do you say about that? Peter Travers of Rolling Stone magazine acclaims, Harvey Keitel whacks you like the business end of a Louisville slugger. It's a powerhouse performance in a film of jabbing intensity and wit. Bad Lieutenant. What else you say, Mr. Badass Phil? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and of course, joining me, co-host, Mr. Mike White. And I have brought my lucky crack pipe. Hey, who doesn't have a lucky crack pipe? Also joining us this week is Patrick Bromley of F This Movie Podcast. Welcome to the show, sir. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, My soul is still dancing. Well... That happens all the time, too, you know, especially on Thursdays. This week, we're talking about Bad Lieutenant, the original and the sort of loose remake sequel, I guess, by filmmakers Abel Farrar and Werner Herzog. The 1991 original stars Harvey Keitel as the Bad Lieutenant in question, who gets in over his head with drugs, prostitutes, and really bad gambling debt. The 2009 remake, uh, I guess, Bad Lieutenant, or The Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, stars Nicolas Cage as the Bad Lieutenant in the days just around and after Hurricane Katrina, who plays a cop who gets in over his head with drugs, prostitutes, and gambling debt. Both films feature bravado performances by their lead actors and interesting camera work and storytelling by their respective directors. And we're going to start the first part of the discussion with the first film, the original, Bad Lieutenant. We will be talking about all aspects of this film, including the ending. So a little spoiler alert here if you haven't seen either Bad Lieutenant, maybe you saw the original, but you haven't seen the Herzog one, do yourself a favor, shut off the podcast, go watch it and come back. 
because we'll be waiting for you. So, Patrick, as our guest, what did you think when you saw the first original Bad Lieutenant film? I first saw the original Bad Lieutenant uh, probably in 1992. I was maybe like a freshman in high school, and um, I was interested in seeing it because I had just seen Reservoir Dogs not too long before that. And so, and I really liked Reservoir Dogs. I know that might make uh, might make Mike's head explode, but um, I really liked Reservoir Dogs. And so then I was kind of chasing that dragon. And there's this VHS cover box, and it's Harvey Keitel and a gun. And I think, well, this has to be like Reservoir Dogs, right? And I watched Bad Lieutenant, and it is nothing like Reservoir Dogs, except that it has Harvey Keitel and a gun. Um, I don't think I was prepared for bad lieutenant at the age that i saw it because I, I felt intimidated by it it was it was almost too much for me to handle and as proof of that i went probably 20 years without seeing bad lieutenant again saw it again as a more mature man ready to accept harvey Keitel's wang on film and uh i liked it a whole lot more sort of as an adult than i did as a as a teen now granted I have no problems with Reservoir Dogs, and I just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> so See, People think that Mike hates Reservoir Dogs or yeah. hates Quentin Tarantino. This is not true. What Mike hates, as his co-host over the last two years, I have come to realize he hates the fact that Tarantino will not admit ah. that he stole the plot from City on Fire. That's the thing that bothers him. So I was very much in the same boat that you were in, Patrick, as far as kind of chasing that Harvey Keitel dragon, because I had seen Keitel in a whole bunch of stuff uh, before this and um, before Reservoir Dogs, but it, he never really clicked for me. Like, I remember him from um, Mean Streets, and like I was like, okay, yeah, this guy is pretty great, but I never really kind of connected with him again until Reservoir Dogs, and then, yeah, it felt like right after Reservoir Dogs was this kind of renaissance of Harvey Keitel. He had never stopped working. But he wasn't getting these kind of meaty roles until right around that time, it felt like. And, I mean, unless you count, like, Sister Act and, and those kind of films. But I was right there with you as far as I want to see more Harvey Keitel. And this movie happened to fall into my lap uh, courtesy of a uh, VHS bootleg. One of these, like, bought on the streets of Chinatown in New York. A friend of a friend went out to New York and found this film and brought it back. So we watched this way too many times uh and i became way too familiar with this movie and with harvey keitel's wang and uh it's one of those though where i watched the hell out of it in 92 when it was out and really didn't go back to see it that often i guess maybe because it just made such a, a strong initial impression it's not like i had forgotten anything when i went back to watch it again for the show it's like yep this is pretty much exactly the way i remember with a couple little caveats that i'm sure we'll talk about as we get along here yeah for me i saw this on vhs and i think this may have been and mike you worked there so you can correct me if i'm wrong on this was bad lieutenant one of those uh blockbuster deals where they had an r edit and they had the nc-17 edit i want to say that it was this would have been i was started working there in 92 93 so we would have had bad lieutenant or we might not have had it uh i don't think this was an unrated movie so i think it probably had an R-rated cut, which was kind of weird. And that was just one of many cuts that this poor movie uh, kind of suffered through. 
So I remember seeing this. I think I got it from the local video store when I was in high school as well. And I hadn't seen, don't think I'd seen Reservoir Dogs at that point. I think I had seen this after Pulp Fiction for some reason. And um, But anyway, it really had an impression on me because I haven't seen this much like you. I haven't seen this in 15 years, 20 years almost. And there are still certain visuals. There's certain things about the performance that I absolutely remember. Uh, these scenes. And I think that that's really a testament to, to Abel Ferrar as a director, just really strong. And to, to me, this is, is probably his high watermark up against some of his other, you know, early sleazy films like Miss 45 and things like that. It's really, um, it, it's one of those films that was sort of like legendary because I remember when it came out when I was in high school. It was that NC-17 thing. It was that it was unrated, and it did have him, as you were saying. It's that image of him with the gun on the front, and it was like, ooh, you know, what's that? i got to see that. And the the whole thing about Harvey Keitel's dick, uh, yeah, I, I wish I could find this joke. There was a piece that Dennis Miller had in one of his old stand-up routines back when Dennis Miller was actually funny to me, where he was talking about, you know, things I could do with less in my life, and it was – the joke was movies featuring Harvey Keitel's dick. I've seen Harvey Keitel's dick more than I see my own dick. And <laughs> and it's true because there seems to be this like period in there between sometime between like 1990 and about 2000 where it's like every damn movie he's in, he's getting butt naked and we got to see this butt naked man. But anyway, we'll get more into that. This this movie, like I said, it had a big impression on me, but it was one of those ones that I was glad I saw it, and I haven't seen it again for years, and it was great to go back to it because I think, like you were saying, like if you watch this thing over and over again, it really kind of blunts the impact. Yeah, it is one of those films where you really shouldn't watch it too many times because that initial impression is so strong, especially um, I guess we can get into the the plot a little bit here because one of the, the major differences that we're going to see between this film and the other Bad Lieutenant film is the um, the religious aspect of it and the scenes where they cut to the things that are happening in the church. We've got the bad lieutenant who's kind of at ease with the world as much as he can be. He is this uh, kind of violent, um, sweary, if that's even a word, uh, <laughs> uses a lot of foul language around his kids and everything. Um, very, very corrupt cop. From what I understood listening to the audio commentary, it kind of sounded like this is he's pretty close to retirement and the idea in some police departments is you give the guy a whole lot of overtime uh when he's near retirement so that they kind of base your wage your retirement wage on that and you also kind of give them a little bit more free reign to um do whatever the hell they want to do. So uh, he gets this almost like a a golden ticket where he can uh, he, he indulges in all of the things that he wants to indulge in. I don't know if anybody really is acknowledging that openly in this. Um, they probably don't know the extent of the, I don't want to say depravity, uh, the depths that he's going to, through, um, the the drug use, the extramarital affair, the, the threesomes that he's doing, <laughs> the exploitation of uh, some of the people that he pulls over at night, this kind of stuff. Um, but 
he has a little bit of glimmer of hope when it comes to this case where a nun has been raped and we kind of follow the bad lieutenant as he's, and he doesn't have a name in this. He's just LT in the script and they never refer to him by name. We kind of follow him as he's going along this path of, of depravity, let's say. And then we also are following him kind of following up on this, um, none case and it's strange where those two worlds meet and you don't really expect that it's anything ever is really going to happen but i think that's what the interesting part of the film is is that he is making progress on this case even though he's in this kind of really messed up state the thing that's interesting about these these two worlds that sort of collide there's his as he's going along and he's trying to investigate this rape of this nun and then when he meets up with the nun, she's like, I've forgiven them. I don't want to get involved with that and everything. And just how he can't, he can't accept that. Your forgiveness will leave blood in its wake. What if these guys do this to other nuns? Other virgins? Old woman who die from the shock do you have the right to let these boys go free can you bear the burden sister like punishment must be dealt out that is so ingrained in him and this this is what you were talking about sort of i think also um this push-pull of catholicism that's in the work where you have this Jesus forgave, I forgive those who have, you know, hurt me and trespassed. And then you have the no, you have to inflict punishment upon these people for their for their deeds. And get with the program. Yeah, and there's this to me it's like both sides of probably what what Abel Farrar maybe grew up with as a kid, as a Catholic, maybe went to Catholic school or something like that. And that kind of reminds me of some of the stuff that my dad would tell me about with his Catholic school upbringing, where it was, you know, oh, yes, we were supposed to forgive, you know, those who have done bad things. But that nun's there with the ruler, and she's going to smack your hands really, really hard if you do something wrong. So there's this meeting out the punishment, but also having that forgiveness angle that is at odds with each other. And one of the things that really struck me this time around, and I I didn't grow up religious, I don't have a a Catholic background, but um, watching it this time, I really felt like Abel Ferrara does kind of put his money where his mouth is as far as sort of the, that, that angle is concerned because it really, like you said, it deals in two extremes because the movie never shies away from making Kaitel just a complete monster. I mean, it really goes out of its way to to demonstrate how messed up he is and how kind of evil he can be. Um, but at the same time, that it really does come down on the side of uh, forgiveness, which is so interesting to me and something I, that I think maybe went over my head when I saw it as a teenager, but now is really kind of moved by the way that everything resolves. Yeah, we should probably before we we go to the I love the backbone of the film because what we're following is a very short period of time and Ferrara really sets this up very well by using this whole idea of the World Series as what we're playing against and what Keitel is betting on um, along with all of his other sins one of them is uh, he's this itinerant gambler and 
keeps doubling his money every single time that he is making bets on these games. And he's even <laughs> telling his uh, co-workers to bet one way, and then he's going to bet another way. They end up winning, and he ends up going deeper into the hole. And he just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper as he goes through this movie, which kind of puts this nice like ticking clock with um, what's happening. Because we know as he goes along, he's getting... Uh, you know, deeper in debt and getting in more trouble. And at the same time, uh, I don't know if he actually feels this or not, but there's one line where he's talking about how he is untouchable because he is a Catholic and nobody can fuck with him because, you know, he's got God on his side basically. And I think he, I think he does believe that. I think he thinks he is invincible. I mean, with all of the, the drugs that he ingests and all of the, the bad things that he does in this film, he is pretty untouchable, and I think he walks through the world thinking that no one can touch him. Well, there's the aspect of him as the cop, and the one thing that he uses being a cop is to use the fact that he is to do misdeeds. Like you were talking about the thing with abusing these girls that he pulls over. But there's also another scene earlier on that just seems kind of a throwaway, but I think is very telling of his of the personality of the character, where... He goes into this apartment, and someone comes out, and he throws the badge at him. It's like, police business, go back in your apartment, you know, get out of here, you know. So he can make this drug deal in the in the hallway with this drug dealer, and just the idea of using that authority, that power that's been given to you, which is supposed to be used in a good way. He uses it, you know, to sort of further his own ends, and also as we were talking about as well with the nun. He gets in at one point in terms of the gambling at like $120,000 in debt. And part of the reason why he's trying to get the nun to turn in the rapists isn't so much also because he believes in this punishment issue, which I I do absolutely believe that's part of it. But there's a $50,000 bounty on these guys if he can turn it in and the reward. So he needs money. So there's this, this whole idea of using the power that he has in order to further his misdeeds. Yeah, going back to the script, it's it's interesting that as we go through the script, each day, like it's like day two, bad lieutenant, you know, Mets lose, bad lieutenant, or lieutenant owes this much money. And then, you know, the next a couple scenes later, it's like day three, uh, Mets lose again, you know, and then like this team loses and all this. And so it's it was nice to see the way that he has this kind of structure and everything. And yeah, I forget about the, the $50,000 bounty because he also, uh, as soon as he hears about that, he kind of puts down the church. Leave it to the Catholic church. Girls get raped every day. Now they're going to put up 50 G just because these chicks wear penguin suits. What is your fucking problem? Church is a racket. So what? Are you a Catholic? I'm a Catholic. Why don't you have a little bit of fucker respect? Hey, fuck that noise. How about the Mets, huh? But you want a shitload of them. One you did. Again, does he necessarily believe this or does he not? Because he seems to have this very righteous streak to him, but then he 
speaks out quite a bit about organized religion. And in the same way, not to keep necessarily tying it back to this uh, Catholicism angle, but but in the same way that he's using his badge sort of as his excuse to do whatever he wants, I think at, at a certain point he then is trying to justify, obviously, taking revenge on these two guys uh, using religion as the justification. And obviously... The Catholic Church is less willing to maybe look the other way, again, not to get too far ahead, but he's able to do it as a cop, but as a Catholic, there's a certain point where the line gets drawn. The thing that's great about that structure is, like you were saying, it it opens where you just have titles and you hear this talk radio program. Hey folks, I know the Mets are down 3-zip in a best of 7. I know no World Series team has ever come back from 3-0 down to win 4 straight. I know that And they're talking about all this stuff related to the series. And me being such a nerd, I had to go look up the series to see if this was an actual series because I'm not a big sports guy. But actually what they're following is the 1988 National League Championship Series. So this is whoever wins this went on to the World Series in 1988. So it gives you an idea of time and place. And plus the idea of of that series, It's it would be seven games if it was played all the way out, I believe, at that time. So... You have roughly 10 days, basically about a week, you know, week and a half that they're going to play these these games. So so it really kind of compresses everything into that time. And you, you get this feeling that, you know, he's kind of playing beat the clock in some way. As you say that, of course, the <laughs> the thing springs to mind immediately as to what week it is right now when we're recording this. I mean, this whole seven day series kind of thing really kind of reminds me of like the passion play and the way that each day has this very special meaning to um, Christians as we go through the, you know, the last seven days of Christ's life. So I wonder if we could possibly draw other parallels. It's probably beyond me not have being that familiar with the gospels or anything, but there probably are ways to put these things into place where you can say like, you know, the, the Ascension would almost be his, you know, the, the moment where he is able to um, go beyond his, his code and adopt the code of forgiveness that, you know, Christ has. So it's, I don't know if I'm stretching this one a little too much or not, but that, that whole idea of the seven day time frame really kind of jumped out at me. Well, a lot of people say that baseball is a religion, so I don't know. Maybe there is a crossover there. <laughs> crossover? Cross <laughs> over? Well, you know, we all have our cross to bear. <laughs> oh. Do either of you get the impression at any point that he. I think at a certain point he sort of suggests, or it's suggested that he sort of knows that perhaps he's damned as he confesses, I've done so many bad things. But did either of you get the impression at any point that he sort of knows that he's doomed, that the clock has run out on him, basically, and he's just sort of on a, um, not a not that he has a death wish, but, you know, sometimes uh, people who are suicidal, they just go on a bender at the very end, and they know that it's that it's over for them. And I had read somewhere that, that 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 was a reading of the film, that at a certain point he's just doing all these drugs and going nuts because he kind of knows it's over for him. But I feel like he's always trying to stay ahead of it. Oh, I, I totally think he's always staying ahead of it. If I think he would be much more relaxed and maybe even enjoying a lot of this stuff more if he was just sort of like, eh, it's going to be over <laughs> soon. It's yeah. just 
he seems so strung out and edged and like always sort of like looking over his shoulder and things like that that I don't believe that it's that. I think he's legitimately, you know, afraid for his life and and fearful that something's going to come down on him. The other thing that I've also read as a reading of this is that you know, getting back to this whole thing of forgiveness and redemption, that there's reviews that I read that said that his character, you know, represents redemption in some way. And in the end, I don't necessarily think he's redeemed at all. I think just it just shows just how far he slid. And if anything, I would say that it's it's a morality tale on how all of these things of the world or whatever, I mean, be it money or drugs or, you know, gambling or whatever – or your your own sort of hubris for your station, you know, in sort of being sort of hypocritical and using it in that way, those things will be your downfall. And that's what I saw it as more of a, a morality tale on those ends than it is about redemption. I don't find it to be that uh, this film to be about redemption. I definitely see redemption as far as and here here we go just talking about the ending now. Well, even before the very, very end, I mean, the whole idea of Christ literally coming off the cross and interacting with the lieutenant and kissing Christ's feet and, you know, confessing and all this stuff. And then after that, when he actually sends the two guys who raped the nun, you know, puts them on the bus and says, get out of town and gives them the their bounty, their 30 pieces of silver almost, to me, that is his one moment where he embraces the whole teachings of Christ. You know, he's heard that the nun has forgiven these boys and he seems to have, I don't think that he's necessarily forgiven them, but he seems to have been able to find in his heart this mercy and is able to send them on their way. I don't know if they're actually going to get on that bus, uh, if they're going to turn around at the next stop and come back or whatever. But for me, that's the moment where we do see this kind of idea of redemption. You get on this fucking bus, man. Because your life ain't worth shit in this town. Yeah, I don't know if he's, like you said, fully redeemed, but it is certainly a redemptive act and and once again that sort of dichotomy is even present in that scene because even as he tries to force himself to turn the other cheek as it were and and uh you know forgive them or, or allow them to live even and try and give them a new life despite their crimes i mean he's just wailing out as he does it like it pains him so badly to do so and so once again we see this guy who's trying to walk the walk but but his heart says otherwise. The famous Harvey Keitel whale. There is so much is of it just... in this movie, I did not remember how much there was. I remembered only one of them, and then when he kept doing it, I was like, oh man, this is great. Especially because he had done that in Reservoir Dogs at one point. I was just like, oh, yeah, this is great. And then when he does it again in Bad Lieutenant, I was like, cool. And then he keeps doing it. It's like, oh. In you know Reservoir Dogs, we only get it once and it's at the end. Here we get it a couple of times. So if you really want to hear the, um, the Harvey Keitel whale, which I think maybe is up there with the Wilhelm scream, um, then maybe uh, here's your place to enjoy it. I wish that they would use that, like the Wilhelm, that any time a character was in pain or suffering or whatever, they would <laughs> throw that in as the sound effect. 
could be as famous as, as the Godzilla roar someday. <laughs> but one thing, like I said, in terms of the visual aspect of this film that Abel Ferrar, I think, really does a nice job with that, that I noticed on this viewing is, okay, first, there's a lot of blue and red light, I noticed, which plays into the whole you know, cop light thing. But in terms of his staging, in terms of his framing, he does a really nice job with with setting up some of these shots, and specifically that ending. I mean, we we talked a little bit about about the ending, but the ending is he's in the car, he pulls up in front of Penn Station, this other car drives up and shoots him, and it's all in one wide shot. There's no close-ups. There's there's none of that, and. I think a lesser filmmaker would have been in there and we would have had all these cuts, all these quick cuts on that ending. But it's no, it's just banal. It's just car pulls up, bam, 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 drives off, and that's the end. And it's just that simple. And it's so brilliant that it's that simple. I'm not sure if you got a chance to listen to the director's commentary on this, but it's hilarious to hear the way that they shot that where basically they I think they did it like two or three times and um, each time they just kind of let the camera roll and most of the people there are some extras here and there at the end but a lot of the people that are in those shots are just regular people on the street and Ferrara said at one point that he was going through people and going I think somebody got shot out over there <laughs> and like getting people's real reactions to it. And even the cop that walks up at the end is a real cop. That's not an actor. Well, and we're so used to movies where when they want to give death, particularly the death of the main character, this kind of weight, you know, they shoot it in slow motion and it's this big deal. There's music and whatever. And here, the way that it's shot, like you said, it's so sort of casual and cold that it really kind of reframed the movie for me because as I watched it I was just thinking okay that was it and he kind of goes out with a whimper and it just makes you feel like it was all for nothing all of the suffering all of the lives that he's ruined and it's over like that and it's all for nothing which I know you know technically flies in the face of a lot of the more spiritual aspects of the film because I guess we're supposed to believe that there's hopefully life after and depending on which way he's going and, and all that. But um, it was just, it was such a kind of a shrug that I felt like, like it was all for nothing. Yeah. And I suppose that kind of plays into the idea of maybe that non-redemptive ending that you were talking about, Rob, as far as, you know, he can be as good as he wants to be, you know, at the end he can do a really good thing. But damned if you do, damned if you don't, he's still going to get punished. I want to say that at the end, the team that he was betting on actually does win. So it's this kind of extra little twist of the, of the knife. This is why I didn't find it to be a redemptive film, because he himself is not redeemed. He doesn't get the opportunity to make amends for all this bad stuff and, and possibly have another day. But I guess one could see it as a redemption because... He learned something before that and was able to give this gift to, as you were saying, the kids get on the bus and go. So that might be actually the more positive redemptive ending than the actual end-end final shot. Well, hey, don't forget, you know, you can be a sinner all your life, and then right there at the very end, you go, I accept Jesus, bam, straight to heaven. So I got that going for me, which is nice. Yeah. That's all we have to do is remember that. Maybe get a tattoo. Oh, that goes against Leviticus. Uh, Never mind. Yeah, I'm going to hell. Yep. Yeah, I didn't think God's going to smile on me for the Bunuel tattoo. Anyway. All right, we are going to take a break and play an interview with 
producer Ed Pressman after these important messages. It's the Daily Grindhouse Podcast. I got your boy hanging. You no business bond insecure junkyard mother. Starring Dr. Freaks. Am I the only one who is concerned about the naked woman tied to a bed? Johnny A-Bomb. I put out the trash. Joe Cosby. Softcore picture? You just said softcore picture. And Warhawk Tanzania as Warhawk Tanzania. You do not come to my turf talking about busting ass. When it comes to cinema, we talk the cream of the crop while scraping the bottom of the barrel. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Facebook, and of course on DailyGrindhouse.com. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast. Because you deserve it. You know, I was looking for a little excitement, but I was worried about privacy. And then I found out about Vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women and men and couples. They have helpful suggestions and information on how to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has never played around with your privacy. While other dot-coms make their money by selling your information, Vibrators.com never has and never will. And when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping on any order. That's Vibrators.com. Get a little excitement in your life. If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast, you would know how to properly crush a head. But let's say you want to crush a head like Toxic Avenger or the famous full head crushing scene. You take a cantaloupe, carve out the inside, then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe. We used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce, but now because I'm a vegetarian, it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal Then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face. Bingo. That was Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to ProudlyResents.com or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. Hey, Iris, you know what we should do? We should try to get Fred Olin Ray on the show. Why would he want to come on our show? Hi, this is Fred Olin Ray, and you're listening to the Badasses Boobs and Body Count Podcast. Okay, what about Olaf Ittenbach, Germany's Splatter King? Ah, uh, that'd be great, but I doubt he speaks any English. I'm Olaf Ittenbach, and you're listening to the Badasses Boobs and Body Count Podcast. What about the director of Blood Sucking Freaks? Joel M. Reed. Isn't he dead? This is Joel M. Reed, and you're listening to Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. No, Iris, he's not. Hello, I'm Mike, host to the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. And I'm Iris, co-host of the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. Every week in I, Iris, discuss lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. Mike and I discuss films like The Black Godfather, The Beast That Killed Women, and Biozombie, to name just a few. And every now and then, we get to speak with the 
people behind all the films we love to talk about. Okay, how about this, Mike? Let's get Andy Sidaris on the show and talk girls, guns, and G-strings. Um, yeah, Iris, he's actually really dead, but we did manage to talk to his wife, Arlene, way back in episode 20. Well, I suppose that's the next best thing. Yeah, I suppose so. So the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts podcast can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher's Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. Just search for the BB&BC podcast to start listening today. You can also visit the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Okay, Iris, did you keep track of the boob and body counts on the film we're discussing next week? Uh, no, I thought you were doing that this week. No, I'm no, I no, uh-uh. no. I've seen this. Uh, boy, no, it we're was gonna have you. To, it was you. Uh, look, from now on, let's both do that. Okay, that sounds good. How did you come to produce Bad Lieutenant? Well, I, I was friendly with Abel. I guess we met through a writer, director named Menno Mayus. Menno wrote The Color Purple, mm-hmm. uh, the screenplay, and then he's, he's, he's written other films and he directed a few films himself. Anyway, so Menno was an old f- friend of Abel's. I think, believe it or not, Abel went to prep school, so they, they knew each other. Back then, I met Abel with other ideas of working on another project called uh, New Rose Hotel, which was a William Gibson story, and we'd worked with Catherine Bigelow on that for a while, and it didn't happen, and then I started talking to Abel about it, but Abel kept, every time we met about this other project, he'd bring up this true story that involved uh, you know, the bad lieutenant and this incident that was in the back of his mind that he kept bringing up and uh, after a number of meetings I said I think that's what you really want to do it, it, it was so we changed course years later we came back on New Rose Hotel but Bad Lieutenant was the, the thing that he was really driven by for a long time before, you know, before we met and then during our first meetings you really worked with a lot of, um, I would say, kind of independently-minded directors over the years, like uh, De Palma and Milius and Ramey. How was it working with Abel Ferrara? It was great. I mean, Abel uh, always had his own idiosyncrasies and preoccupied all outside of the film area. But when it came to film, he was totally focused and totally great to work with. Very, very smart, and you know, had a real command of the medium. We we had raised some money in Japan around the time we we met up at Lieutenant, and we said we'd finance it ourselves. I think it was like a million dollar budget. Abel was totally responsible and pulled in all kinds of favors and shot in the middle of New York City in traffic and complicated locations. But he really knew how to how to do it. It was, it was he was totally responsible and very pragmatic. So he was a joy to work with. He was a great collaborator. From what I've read about the the film, it seemed like there was a lot of um, 
collaboration as far as working on the script and everything I've heard of. You know, there's the officially listed writers, and then it seemed like some other people have been listed as helping out write the screenplay. Was it that kind of a collaborative experience, or, or how was the experience of the story kind of coming together? Well, it was, it was Abel's impulse, but he always wanted to work with, uh, what was her name? She was in the film, and she was she shared uh, credit on the film. Was it uh, Zoe Lund? Yeah, she was definitely a collaborator with Abel on the script and in the process of the film. I think Abel had always worked with another writer, what was his name, who worked on like King of New York. Uh, and Nicholas St. John had worked with Abel on a lot of his other films before, but um, he might have talked to him, but I know it was Zoe who he really collaborated with the most. Skipping ahead a few years, how did um, Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans come about? That was a very uh, unexpected event. I never anticipated doing a, uh, another Bad Lieutenant movie, but um, these two young producers, uh, the Polsky brothers and, and Stefan Belafonte, who was a friend of mine, he's still a friend of mine, so Stefan introduced us to the Polskys, and it, they had the idea of doing a Bad Lieutenant TV series. They said they'd finance the development, and I said, well, I'm not sure where it'll go. I hadn't done television. But, so we started to develop it with Billy Finkelstein, who was a TV uh, writer. I he, worked on, I think, NYPD Blue and some other successful shows. So the TV idea was something we did with Abel, with Abel and Billy. And then I think Billy and Abel had a parting of the ways creatively. So the whole idea of working together with Abel on that TV idea fell apart. And we were left with, a, uh, I guess, an outline or a treatment by Billy. And I'd been friendly with Werner Herzog uh, over the years. And met with him when he was in L.A., and I was in L.A. as a Chateau Marmont, and and just offhandedly threw out the idea of doing another Bad Lieutenant movie, and he asked to read it. I gave him Billy Billy's screenplay, and to my surprise, Werner said he would do it, and like to do it, if but only if we could get uh, Nick Cage, because I know Nick and he had talked about working together years earlier on a project about Cortez, uh, a great conquistador. So the Cortez project, which was developed by Zoetrope, never came to pass, but they had wanted to work together. And and I knew Tom Luddy, who worked at Zoetrope, and and Tom suggested, I don't know if it came first from Tom or first from Werner, but it it, it reminded me, because we had our own Cortez project, which... uh, was written by Nick Kazan. Nick Kazan had written Reversal of Fortune for us, and he had written a Cortez project that was very, very expensive. We never could find a way to get it done, but we were competing years earlier with Werner and Nick, who had this other Cortez project at Zoetrope. So when I met Werner, either he suggested or Tom reminded me that they had wanted to work together, and, and Werner said, you know, the only person who could do it, that he would be interested in working with was Nick. And Nick was in Australia doing a movie. As I recall, he actually 
said he'd love to do it before he actually even read the script. It was sort of they did, they, they'd wanted to work together. So we, we sent you know we sent Billy's script, which Werner made his own. Werner worked on Billy's script and made a lot of modifications and put in a lot of elements that were not in the original, the original script. Billy's script was pretty straight ahead. didn't have any dancing lizards or whatever. But Werner and, and, and Nick agreed to do it. And once that happened, uh, we had a couple of companies ready to make the movie and back it. We went with uh, Avi Werner's company. He gave us free reign and you know, as long as we could do it within the budget framework, we, we did the we did the film the way Werner, you know, wanted it. I, I think, as I recall, John Levin, who was one of the agents at CAA that represented Cage, said Nick had a home in New Orleans at the time. He actually had two homes there. And said if we could set it in New Orleans, which was not the original setting, that would be a big attraction to Nick. And that was something Werner thought was a good idea after... Katrina and, and, you know, working around the havoc that that created on the city. So uh, it, it came together, you know, came together very quickly because they wanted to work together and very liked the idea of doing it in New Orleans and Nick wanted to do it there. So it's one of the rare times, you know, usually films take forever to get put together. This came together very quickly. I can't think of two directors that are really more different than Abel Farrar and yeah. Werner Herzog. Uh, How was Werner to work with? He, he was a pleasure too. Werner, as is Abel's, is a total command of the, the medium, and he claimed never to have seen Abel's movie, which was interesting. And, and they, I think, when we first announced it, Abel was very angry at the idea that we would take his character and allow another director to do it. But over the years, you know, we've stayed friends, and then and I talked to Abel maybe. Uh, Two months ago, and he t- tells me that he and Werner actually finally met and, and got along very well. It turned out to be, you know, I mean, there, were, there were times <clears throat> while we were making the Werner's movie that Abel was quoted as being very angry and I should go to hell and this kind of stuff. But that's all been by the wayside, and, and uh, they're not, it's certainly not a sequel. It's a Werner's own take on a, a bad lieutenant, but I wouldn't be surprised if he, I'm pretty sure he never did see Abel's movie. He just uh, did his own. My, my son is now doing a documentary called Reconquest of the Useless because he got to know Werner while we were making the film. He did the behind the scenes making of the film and he's doing a documentary now sort of tracing the journey that Werner took down the Amazon on Aguirre and Peru and Brazil and it was Aguirre and Fritz Caraldo both both down there down there so it's sort of a a journey of a young young man growing up infatuated by film and by the myth of Werner sort of following that path and growing up in the process so he's he's been working with Werner of late, it's been very helpful. It's taken three years. It's finally getting finished in the next uh, month or so. 
three years is probably fairly normal when it comes to putting together a, a passion project like that. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever had something, you know, like a poker in the fire for a long, long time where you're just kind of waiting for it to, to happen and it finally does? A couple of projects. It took a long time. We, I remember when we did the first Conan the Barbarian, I was introduced to uh, a rough cut of pumping iron and so this personage, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and said, what could, he had such a magnetism when I was sitting next to a fellow who owned a comic book gallery in New York and said, it's Conan. I said, what's Conan? He took me to the gallery and showed me the Frank Frazetta paintings and the comics and that was an eight-year journey by the time you know, first meeting Arnold and trying to convince people that Arnold could be a leading man and that this wasn't a sword and sorcery movie. There was something new. I mean, it wasn't a sword and sandal movie. It was sword and sorcery. It was a new genre. So that that was a long journey. And we're doing something now called The Monkey Wrench Gang, which has been a 20-year journey. It's Edward Abbey book, which, which is finally coming together. Been a long, long time in the in the in the making. Yeah, I've read about you making that. That yeah, I think I read that book probably ten years ago. Yeah, and then we we met these two young filmmakers, uh, Henry Juice and Ralph Shulman. Did Catfish, and then they did a couple of the Paranormal Activity movies, and they wrote a script which is really terrific and has made it very contemporary and very very funny and smart and it's attracted a major casting and it looks like finally it's going to get get made. Speaking of Conan, how was that experience for you? You said it took a long time to, to come to fruition. Was that originally supposed to be an Oliver Stone film? Yeah, at one point, Oliver, we had done The Hand. Uh, I met Oliver because of Conan, before The Hand. And he had written a script, like his showpiece was a script called Platoon, which hadn't been made yet. And it was an amazing script. And so we hired Oliver to do Conan, and he wrote a brilliant script, which was sort of like Dante's Inferno. It was very dark and very ambitious and very expensive. And for a while, we tried to set it up with with him directing, and then with him co-directing with Joe Alves, who had done the effects on Jaws, so a lot of different ideas. And then we had it set up with uh, Ridley Scott and we met a number of different directors and then they kept kept getting close and then uh, Oliver and I were in London and I think uh, in great despair because Ridley had changed his mind <clears throat> and then uh, Dino De Laurentiis was there at the time and told us uh, I guess his agent Jeff Berg said go on over to Dino's home which was near where we were and he said he'd help finance the film with John so John came into that but it was a very circuitous path to get to John and then John and and Oliver uh, you know, each shared shared credit on the movie so it was, uh, John wrote the final script but it was based on Oliver's draft How is that working with Milius? It seems like he's got such a strong personality Yeah, well he and Oliver for a long time, they, they were very strong personalities and very cantankerous with each other. But uh, that's mellowed over the years. But yeah, they both 
both very strong personalities. I'm based over in Detroit, so Sam Raimi kind of holds a special place in my heart. Can I ask you, what was it like making Crime Wave? That was a very... Uh, well, I remember Detroit. Uh, I guess Detroit hasn't changed that much since then. It's like <laughs> no, it hasn't. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a, a very yeah city in decay, and uh, it was like that then. And and uh, it was the only time I actually actually cast for a real role in a movie. Sam asked me to play Mister Trend. So that made it an unusual experience because producing was always, you know, very taxing and, and a zillion different questions to be answered and problems to be solved. Whereas taking on the role of acting seemed so simple. It was like, well, well, yeah, just one dimension. And uh, because I was a producer, I could take more takes. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> much of an actor, but I got, I got the ability to can make mistakes and do it over again. But Sam is a, you know, the filmmakers we've talked about, Abel and Werner, Sam, they're total masters of their craft and really knew what they wanted. And that's what, you know, great directors, you know, that's what I always look for. To be able to work with someone, I got, and my job is to just to set the context for them to achieve their vision. And Sam had a very clear and unique, you know, idea of what, uh, what the movie should be. I met him, my wife was an actress, she was in a Roger Corman film called Battle Truck, which was shown in a Voriaz in France at a sci-fi festival, and uh, Sam had Evil Dead 1, his first film, shown there. That's that's where we met, and uh, that's how we turned into doing a Crime Wave or XYZ Murders. You've kind of had a like a Detroit connection. Looking at your filmography to see that you've got that, and then Hoffa and The Crow. Did you um, spend much time in Detroit when it came to Hoffa or The Crow? Did, was The Crow even shot here? I can't remember. The Crow was shot in New Orleans, in North uh, North Carolina. The Hoffa actually ended up being shot in Pittsburgh. <laughs> it was not shot in Detroit. So the only film we actually shot in Detroit was Crimeware. With the Coleman Young administration back then, was there much corruption that you had to kind of battle through to make a film in Detroit at that time? Because of Sam and his his partner, Rob Tappert, they seemed to know, it's like Abel knew New York City. He could get around the unions and the mob and everything that was going on in in New York. Abel had it, Abel knew the ins and outs of the system and I think Sam and Rob knew Detroit well, so it was a tight budget film, but it was, I think, I don't recall having tremendous, you know, production or governmental interference. So you've done over 80 films now. When you look back at your your body of work, which is uh, tremendous, by the way, I've seen probably most of it, but when it comes to looking back, what do you see as kind of your overlooked gems? What are the ones that you wish more people would have recognized at the time? Uh, There was a film that we did called Heartbeat about Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy, John Byram directed, which I think was a very original movie. Not many people know. Uh, There was a film called Cherry 2000 that really was a flop 
that was a very interesting film. Uh, sort of reminiscent of the movie Her that's out now. I love doing Pirates of Penzance with Joe Papp, and it was a totally different kind of movie, Operetta, which, which no one could fathom at the time. But I think it was a, a very interesting film that was directed by Will Leach, who was sort of inspired by Jacques Tati, French director. Got victim of a, an experiment at Universal because they tried to open it day and date with cable television screenings, which had never been done before. Mm-hmm. It's a total failure. No one went to see it in the movie theaters. And the, the chains wouldn't book it because it was on TV, and people didn't watch it on cable, so no, no one watched the movie. And there were some films we did when we were we started content film. We did. Some of the, you know, a couple of the films were well liked, but like The Cooler and Thank You for Smoking. But there were some films we did then that didn't connect as well, like Hebrew Hammer, which I think is a very amusing movie, and Party Monster, Philip Seymour Hoffman movie Owning Mahoney, and 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 and, and uh, James Marsh who did the great film about the guy that walked across the. World Trade Center, Man on a Wire. He did a film called The King with us, uh, which was uh, about incest, but a very good movie. Mexican actor um, with John Hurt and Gail Garcia Bernal. A number of films that I, I think are, are very interesting films that were not as well liked as some others. So you mentioned one of the movies that you're working on now. Um, what else do you have coming up? Well, we're working... On a, a a new crow movie with a Spanish director named Javier Gutierrez and uh, a, a film that, uh, called Bloodsport with uh, James McTeague who did V for Vendetta and Monkey Wrench Gang I mentioned and we're working with Brian De Palma again on a film called Happier Valley about Joe Paterno with Al Pacino. I just got the uh, DVD of Phantom of the Paradise and it looks beautiful. The Blu-ray. Ah, great. great. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's a, a film I'm, I'm really proud of. That stands up very well. Yeah, what's up? What's going on? Before we start this next record, I gotta put my shades on so I can feel cool. Remember that law? When you put your shades on to feel cool? Well, it's still a law. Thanks to Mr. Pressman for coming on the show. We're back. We're talking about the Bad Lieutenant films. He was producer of both of them, Abel Ferrara one, and also the one we're going to talk about now. So, gentlemen, are you ready to get dipped in the bayou, Cajun style? I don't know if I'm ever ready to get dipped in the bayou. <laughs> and I just, I just did it before we started, so <laughs> I'm not going to do it again. Please get me out of here. You want me to get wet on account of you? Hey, man, I got on Swiss cotton underpants. I'm gonna drown, sir. Come on, we'll get the time of death from on top. Please, come on, man. It ain't worth it. You are crazy. Come on. <laughs> okay. The good news, Terrence, is I'll okay you to return to full duty. The bad news is that you'll be experiencing moderate to severe back pain. 
recognition of his leadership and tenacity, Lieutenant Terrence McDonough. This is what we're looking for. His name is Donald Godshaw. You up to this? Why wouldn't I be? Still have problems with your back. You take medication for it? Only what the doctor prescribes. Got any illegal substances on you? The guy you robbed. To make it right, you gotta come up with $50,000. Don't make me look for you, Terrence. You mind stepping outside? I'd like to talk to you. I'm gonna give you a chance to make some money the old fashioned way with a cop protecting you. You were crazy, man. <laughs> I took you to a place. It's amazing how much you can get done when you've got a simple purpose guiding you through life. Against the wall. Can empty your pockets, dump out the handbag. You want a hit? Yes. What are these iguanas doing on my coffee table? They ain't no iguana. Yeah, there are. Ain't no iguana. Where's the 15,000? Put that gun away. Kill all of you. <laughs> to the break of dawn, baby. <laughs> you know the people are friendly there. Do you think these guys care you're a cop? Shoot him again. What fool? His soul's still dancing. Back at home. Okay, so it's the bad lieutenant because it says the on the front title of this film. Port of Call, New Orleans, which is a really long title. And this is the 2009 Werner Herzog film starring Nicolas Cage, as I said, as the bad lieutenant in question. And we're taking a look at this one, and I got to tell you, it, it's a masterpiece. I I saw this thing on a burned DVD that a coworker gave me because I didn't get a chance to see it when it played in Detroit for I think two weeks or a week or something. I couldn't make it over there, and I saw this thing at home on a bootleg before it came out, and absolutely loved it, and rushed out and got the Blu-ray, and I absolutely love. Bad Lieutenant Protocol, New Orleans. It is, I don't even know where to go with it. I appreciated Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant a lot more watching it this time. I'm fascinated by it. I flat out love Bad Lieutenant, the Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Um, and this is, a, not to get, go down a weird personal tangent, in 2009 when this movie was playing, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. I was in my 30s. It was a weird fluke situation. And the day that I went to the doctor and he said, you have type 1 diabetes. You have to start this, this, and this. I came home very depressed and feeling defeated and decided I wanted to escape and go to a movie. And I went to see Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans. And it, uh, it made me forget all of my troubles because I was able to lose myself in Nicolas Cage's troubles. I love this movie. This one took me forever to finally watch i don't know why that necessarily was i don't know if it was that i had uh, the similar abel ferrara bad feelings about why would you remake the bad lieutenant or is this a remake or is this a sequel or does this continue with the character what the hell is this thing um, I wasn't necessarily having a really good time with Nicolas Cage at the moment when this movie came out. Yes, Werner Herzog was the director, and yes, I really like his stuff, but I was like, ah, do I really want to see this? It took me forever to watch it. When I did, I was very pleased with it. Um, I find it 
very goofy um, in a good way, and I have enjoyed it more the more times that I've watched it. The first time, for some reason, it took me a little while to kind of get into the rhythm of it, but it, it definitely grows on me each time that I see it. And one of the reasons that I think it does is because each time I see it, I not only do I appreciate Nicolas Cage in this one, but I appreciate some of the other actors even more every time I watch it. And this is the first time I've ever seen Eva Mendes in a film and actually liked her performance, which really says something because I, for a lot of years, said that she had no business being in movies, period. So to like her performance in this film is really quite a big deal for me. I agree with you on that. I mean, the the performances put in by both of them, which you later see, or it may have been right around the same time in Ghost Rider. Oh, Ghost Rider, no. Now, Ghost Rider, I will watch any fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sequel, original, whatever. I will watch the shit out of that movie. But oh. this one, I was just like, I don't know about this. Ah. <laughs> I forgot that they that they acted together in Ghost Rider, that this is a Ghost Rider reunion. Yes, yes, it is. But I have to say, you know, in, in terms of the, the, the secondary cast in here is pretty amazing. I mean, Val Kilmer hasn't done anything in quite a while that I was excited about, and I think he does a great job in here. And then even, um, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes leery of rappers as actors, and I think Exhibit does a great job in here, too. And it's... The, the the film, yes, it is goofy. I, I will give you that. It is goofy. There are things in it that are just bizarre, like the iguana cam. But it it makes sense. It it plays in this own in its own little universe, and it makes sense. And I I just I, I just adore it. Before we get too far along this discussion, I really want to have us play a little quote from Herzog where he talks about what people like us are doing to movies by examining them too much. And and this quote comes from the bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans book that they put out, which is really a great book. I have to recommend it. It is photos by Herzog's wife, behind the scene photos that she took during the production of the film, some beautiful, beautiful images. And that's another reason why I think that this film works so well is just because it is so gorgeous. And then it's the entire script. It's the Finkelstein Herzog version of the script that is in this book. It's this hardcover, um, beautiful thing. So let's play that clip. And then, uh, so we can hear what Mr. Herzog thinks about people like us. It does not bespeak great wisdom to call the film the bad lieutenant, and I only agreed to make the film after William Finkelstein, the screenwriter who had seen a film of the same name from the early 90s, had given me a solemn oath that this was not a remake at all. But the film industry has its own rationale, which in this case was the speculation of starting some sort of franchise. I have no problem with this. Nevertheless, the pedantic branch of academia, the so-called film studies, in all its attempt to do damage to cinema, would be aesthetic to find a small reference to the earlier film here and there though it will fail to do the same damage that academia in the name of literary theory has done to poetry, 
which it has pushed to the brink of extinction. Cinema, so far, is more robust. I call upon the theoreticians of cinema to go after this one. Go for it, losers. So yeah, hopefully we will not be destroying the poetry of this film too much as we talk about it, because there are a lot of very poetic moments. And I, I would think even, you know, you were talking about the iguanas. I think that's a nice little, uh, it's a little break in the film. we got a little almost music video kind of thing going on with the song playing and the iguanas and uh, everybody just kind of in this nice little tableau as uh, we get the iguana cam going for the first time of a few times in the film. So let's get into the plot a bit for the bad lieutenant protocol new orleans i don't want to call it that maybe we can come up with a, a shorter version um <laughs> it always cracks me up there's this line from uh have you either of you guys seen um what was that kevin costner movie um no way out have either of you guys seen no way out no yes do you remember how bad of an actress sean young was in that film i do yeah, she's got this one line where she talks about all the exotic ports of call, and then she stops and says, that's what they call it, isn't it? Port of call. So every time I hear port of call, I always think of Sean Young saying that horrible line reading in a way out. Some of us are thinking of Sean Young every day. Yes. <laughs> are you thinking about her in her Catwoman suit? <laughs> All right. Sorry, Rob. So yeah, please let, let's, I guess maybe we could, I know people shorten this to poke no quite often, but I think that sounds kind of silly. Yeah, that's silly. Anyway, we, we know which one we're talking about. So, okay. You know, the, the one thing that's interesting about setting it just right on the cusp of Katrina there is that there's so much nature. Like we talk about the iguanas, there's this whole thing with the, um, the alligator and the car accident. But the first image that we have in the film is a snake going through the water. And then we find out that this water is actually the water that's rising from the floods in the jail where the Lieutenant Terrence McDonough, Nicholas Cage works. And there's a guy stuck in a cell and him being cage and Val Kilmer's character hear this guy screaming. They're like, what is that? Like everybody should be gone. Like, and they have to go kind of figure out, okay, why is this guy still in there? And what are they going to do about it? Yeah. And I like that. They then immediately begin taking bets on where the water is going to be at by four o'clock, where it'll be by five o'clock. And they're in <laughs> Val Kilmer. What? He wants to place a $5 bet, but um, Nicholas Cage is just like five. What are you talking about? Or it's twenty dollars or whatever. Let's make it interesting. Let's make it a grand. And it's like, whoa! So immediately we're getting that these guys aren't necessarily that caring, <laughs> and they're also uh, we've got the gambling aspect of the original Bad Lieutenant coming in, which I absolutely love. The whole thing where the guys like, you know, hey, come, you know, get get me out of here, get me out of here. And Cage is like, wait a minute, you want me to get wet on account of you? Yeah, I think the world owes you living, huh? Drown, sir. Hey, man, I got on Swiss cotton underpants. Yeah, that's right. Cost me $55 a pair. You think I want to get all this brown water and shit all over them? That don't come out. You, you got underwear on that cost $55. My girl got into it. 
<laughs> Come on, we'll get the time of death from autopsy. What are you doing? Hold this. Oh, come on, man. And let the fire department get him out. What are you, crazy? He ain't worth it. Come on, man. You are crazy. <laughs> you okay, man? So it really sets up telling us everything we need to know about this character and that when he decides to jump in to save this guy, I think that's really what tells us about this character because you think that he is going to be this jerk and he could easily be, they could easily just go right back upstairs. And as Vel Kummer says, yeah, we'll, we'll use the autopsy to determine time of death. But then Cage decides that he's going to uh, save this guy and subsequently gets punished for it by fate, as it were, by hurting his back. And that kind of sets up the drug use that we're going to have in the film. And they don't have a ton of scenes together, but every time I watch the film, uh, watching that initial interaction between Cage and Kilmer makes me realize that I part of me wishes the whole movie was just a buddy cop movie with Nicolas Cage and Val Kilmer because I like watching them so much together. And just to real quick jump back to the fact that, that this movie is called The Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. And I love the addition of the the so much because it makes it sound like like a, a one in a series of French farces, just, Oh, it's the bad Lieutenant in back trouble or whatever. I love, <laughs> I love the inclusion of the, I, yeah, you're right. When it comes to Val Kilmer being in this, he is, I, I don't know what it is, but when he buckles down and plays like a cop or a detective, most of the time, I mean, the, of course the other performance that comes to mind is him as gay Paris in kiss, kiss, bang, bang. And that, I mean, that is probably one of his top performances for me ever. And then I would say that this one and The Saint, no, I'm just kidding. This one and <laughs> Spartan are probably, you like that? You like how I threw that in there? <laughs> I got thrown out of The Saint at a dollar show for making fun of it too much. <laughs> but I would say that... Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans, and Spartan, if I were to chart out what I think are the, the top Val Kilmer performances, this belongs in the top, even though he is shamefully not in the film nearly as much as I wish he was, too. Come on, you're missing one. All right, well, for sure, um, top secret. Yes. And maybe Top Gun. I don't know if he was ever... Um, he, he plays a top in quite a few things. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, real genius. Yes, you're right. I, I avoided Red Planet. God, so good. I mean, I, I do agree with you on this. I mean, if if could be, if we could get a buddy cop film with those two guys and bring Herzog back, it'd be genius. I have not yet seen My Son, My Son, What Have You Done, which was kind of a follow-up to Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans, where it was Herzog working with Michael Shannon again. I don't know if either of you guys have seen that one, but it seems like it could be, just from the director-actor combination, it seems like that could be another good one, too. Because Shannon is in this, very briefly plays the guy who is in charge of the... um, evidence room and again when he shows up it's it's he is very good in this and pretty much i mean the performances in this are top notch and just the people that are even playing the minor characters i mean having feruza balk playing 
So we have a Island of Dr. Moreau um, reunion in this film as well. But having Faruza Bal playing like the traffic cop, who's only in there for two scenes, but she is incredible in it. You know, everybody in this film is doing a wonderful job. And I don't know if that's just natural talent, great script, great production, or having this, you know, master director in charge of things. I think it's probably because it's Werner Herzog and he wants you to do one scene. We'll do it for no money, just so I can be in a Herzog film. Michael Mann movies sometimes do that same kind of thing where every little bit part that comes up is an actor that you recognize and a lot of times like, and you're just happy to see them. Sean Hattesey shows up in this movie, and I've never once in my life been happy to see Sean Hattesey on screen, and yet he pops up in Bad Lieutenant, and I think, oh, wow, that's great that he's in this. Yeah, I was when he came on, I was just like, where do I know this guy from? And it took me quite a while before I was like, oh, yeah, he was in The Faculty. Okay. <laughs> from my outside Providence fan fiction. Yes, exactly. Okay, now that we've completely derailed the... <laughs> well, one of the things that we haven't talked about, I mean, I did bring up the, the character's name, is Lieutenant Terrence McDonough, which the last name reminds me of another Nicolas Cage film that I really like. My name is H.I. McDonough. Call me Hi. So are you saying that Port of Call New Orleans is actually a sequel not to Bad Lieutenant, but to Raising Arizona? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe this is his brother. I don't know. H.I. McDonough's brother. His older, squirrelier brother. He's kind of more doing his vampire's kiss a little bit in this more than I, I would think that he's doing his his H.I. McDonough. Yeah, he doesn't quite have, I mean, he has a little bit of an accent, but he doesn't quite have the same kind of drawl that he had as H.I. McDonough. So we've we've got Cage rescuing this guy at the very beginning, and which leads to him having back troubles and have, puts him on Vicodin. And I don't know if it was the combination of him kind of having these like loose morals again with Vicodin that put him on this path. But definitely when we cut to six months later, we've got him just snorting a big old, you know, back of the fist full of uh, cocaine and proceeding from there. But again, he is a very competent cop when it comes to doing his job. He seems to know all of the tricks, not only to avoid detection of being, you know, going in and stealing evidence when it happens to be drugs. He's very skillful when it comes to that, but he is also very skillful when it comes to actually solving cases. And in this one, we have, it pretty much starts off right near the beginning, uh, a murdered family, and he makes it his mission that he's going to solve this case. So really, the investigation even though it takes a lot of turns and we go into some very different areas that um, involve um, more drug dealers and um, some of the stuff that is going on in um, McDonough's life when it comes to his prostitute girlfriend and unhappy customers and then some of the stuff when with him. Again, he's a gambler and he just keeps getting more and more into debt. We have those things going on at the same time, but the through line of this film is his investigation into this death of this family. And it seems like he's very touched when it comes to this family, especially when he sees the poem about the fish that uh, he finds in the one of the, the little kid's room. And that really, to me, is the moment that kind of puts him 
into motion is reading this poem about this fish that this kid has because we end up with him in front of an aquarium um, talking about, you know, do fish dream? So I don't know. To me, that seems like it really kind of, even though there are all these weird sideways um, and alleyways in this film, it feels like there is this very direct path through the entire film. I get the feeling that although he was one of the guys kind of cop, that it was him trying to save someone, that it was him getting on these painkillers that sent him down the road. I don't get the feeling that before we get that opening scene, that whole thing, that he was that bad, that he would have been doing the stuff that we see later on in the film. I get the feeling that he is uh, much more together and that it becomes the pain, it becomes the drugs and sort of the cycle of all of that, that, that leads him further down. So we get in that scene where he saves the guy from drowning in that cell as the water continues to rise, that he is a good guy, that he, that he has a sense of, you know, wanting to help others and, and uh, a sense of, re- of possible redemption when we get towards the end. So it'd be called like the mediocre Lieutenant? No, he becomes the bad lieutenant. He is not the bad lieutenant when he starts. See, that's the thing. Going back to the whole thing as um, putting the term the at the beginning of the title, I, I thought of the at the beginning of the title, and I don't know if this is true or not, as the producer giving the finger to Abel Ferrar. <laughs> so it, it, this is the definite article, the, as opposed to your film. So, But anyway. A bad lieutenant? Yeah, that's like any, but the means it's the only, so there you go. Well, as we heard Ed Pressman talk about, there was no hard feelings between him and Farrar, at least on his end, and I don't think he was necessarily flipping the finger to Farrar. And what kills me is this whole idea, and we're going to hear more about it when we talk to screenwriter William Finkelstein, is the whole idea that there was discussions for a long time that Bad Lieutenant was going to become a television show. I still can't get that out of my head. It's like, how the hell would they have done that? I mean, we you know we live in a world where Breaking Bad is a thing or was a thing, so we know that that can happen as far as this kind of the going down this path. You know, it's, uh, Walter White starting off as this normal everyday teacher and going into this thing where he becomes this crime lord he becomes heisenberg so i can see that change from the cop at the beginning of bad lieutenant the the mcdonough character who is a little twisted them joking about this or possibly being serious about this guy in the cell and him going into this whole steady decline through the rest of what could have been a series but yeah i just i Every time I think about it, I think, you know, would that really have worked? And I don't know if it would have, but I'm glad that they ended up turning it into this. If it was a a show on HBO and Nicolas Cage was the star, I would stop watching every other show just so I could only watch The Bad Lieutenant on a weekly basis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as I'm thinking about, like, the iguanas and everything, I'm just like, well... This kind of is up there with the uh, dancing little man from another world speaking backwards. That I don't know if it's necessarily that weird, but if that kept coming up, I could kind of see that as being, you know, that kind of Twin Peaks nod kind of thing. But yeah, so I guess it could work, but um, 
you know, it unfortunately it didn't. So um, it does work as a film. There are other tells as sort of the plot goes on, as he gets more and more, he gets kind of disheveled. Things get weirder. He gets more involved with Ava Mendez's character, the prostitute character. And you also notice that the way he, he handles his gun changes. Like no cop in the history of the world would shove their gun down the front of their pants like that. <laughs> because they'd be likely to you know shoot themselves in the dick. And it's happened. So he, <laughs> he just kind of has this thing with shoving it down the front of his pants. And like things just kind of continue to move on and to get odder and odder and odder as you go. So by the time you do get to the iguanas, which I talked about at, at the opening of the segment, the iguanas actually make sense. They're weird out of context, but if you're watching the whole film, it makes sense. How long has it been in there? About 20 minutes. Who else? His girlfriend, at least one infant. That's as far as we know. What are these fucking iguanas doing on my coffee table? They ain't no iguana. Yeah, there are. There ain't no iguana. What the fuck is that? Fucking iguana. Hope we set up. Swat's around the corner. No! No. Just, just no swat. Let him stay there. Well, the duty captain said he wanted to coordinate with us when we ended. Is that right, Stevie? Is that what you're fucking doing now? Reporting back to the fucking duty captain? I'm telling captain? you what he said. We need swat. We'll call him. If you just go to YouTube and you watch the iguana scene clip, you're like, what is this? But it totally makes sense within the film. I will not disagree. The other thing that's funny about this film, and I and I think this might have been, Patrick, where you were talking about, you know, I'd love to see this as a buddy cop film, is that there are a lot of police procedural cliches in here that Herzog kind of messes with. One of which being, okay, the odd partner. There's always the odd partner. So it's like, who's the odd partner? Is it Cage or is it Kilmer? And then the other one that's a total cliche is the black uh, captain, the black <laughs> the black guy who yells at the lead cop about how he's going off the rails, like he's he's not doing things right. And they have that in here, although they don't play that up as high. But they do have the black captain, which just seems like a total cliche from a lot of police procedurals. He's played by Von D. Curtis Hall, the director of Glitter. <laughs> so he's, he's redeemed in that way, is what you're saying. Yeah, I, I definitely see this as playing with those conventions a, a little bit. And, you know, they, they I like when um, he's under investigation and the two guys take his gun and his badge and he's just like, I don't have a gun anymore. What what kind of man am I? And it's just like wow, you know, you're really wearing it on your sleeve right there. And there are some so cornball lines in the film, but just I don't know what it is that it just works for me when Cage is delivering them. And I could see myself kind of laughing at some of these, but I don't know. As you said, the context of it really kind of pulls it through and pulls it all together for me. Well, everything about the movie is sort of like this, it's it's every cop movie that you're used to seeing, but then twisted just enough that you're not, you're never quite sure, is this the thing? Is this commenting on the thing? And the greatest example, I don't want to get too far ahead, but there's a scene near the end that we can talk about when we get there that, to me, summarizes so much of that quality of the film. Oh my god, the end of the film. The Yeah, 
there's one sequence in there that just every time I watch it, I cannot stop laughing. So. <laughs> I think I know where we're going. The yeah. um, so let's talk about exhibit. Let's talk about how in the film he decides that what he wants to do is now go into the drug dealing business. So he's going to get this stuff. He's going to work with this dealer. He's going to get protection and he's going to he's going to get his crack and he's got his lucky crack pipe and they sort of work out this whole deal. Yeah, which is a pretty sweet deal for everybody involved and exhibit. Not, um, you know, we're talking about the, the, the stereotypes that the film is playing with, not necessarily a stereotypical drug dealer, crime Lord, kind of a guy, very savvy, very smart. It takes some doing for cage to finally pull the wool over his eyes. But I, I think that he, he plays great. And again, Great, great performance from him. I've seen Exhibit in other films. I think he was, what, in Triple X or something? And, yeah, he's all right. You know, it's like, okay, passable. But in this one, yeah, he's toe-to-toe with Cage, and I totally believe him in this film. He was fantastic, and he's got that great voice that he has no problem using in this and is just like, yeah, this this guy, I would be afraid to be on the other end of uh, this guy's gun. This is the way to do business. This, this way I ain't got to worry about what I'm walking into. I got you. <laughs> yeah, let me hit that shit. Yeah. <laughs> you hitting this shit? Hey, midget, light the Caucasian's rock. <laughs> you my kind of motherfucking cop, man. You a crazy motherfucker. Where'd that key run you? <laughs> uh, what, what do you care? I'm guessing 60,000. Pretty good guess. Will you shut the fuck up? You owe me 15,000. I'll take 25% of the dope uncut. That means you get my price. That's one way of looking at it. The other is you get to keep 75% and not go to prison for the rest of your life. <laughs> well, everybody in the movie has, you know, only a short amount of time to really make an impression. And they do a great job of sketching an interesting character in maybe a scene or two, whether it's Jennifer Coolidge as, as Cage's mom or whatever. And they kind of have to do that because I think otherwise... Nicholas Cage's performance would swallow them all. Um, and so the fact that everybody's sort of able to hold their own and create memorable characters in the span of a limited amount of screen time is really a testament, I think, not just to the casting of the film, but to all these actors. Yes. 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 You know, which leads us up to the, the, the scene that I absolutely know that made you laugh and make you laugh every time you see it. I've seen this movie probably a dozen times now, and it never fails to make me bust out laughing. And it has to be the basically the, uh, the, the hit gone wrong, the guys come to seek revenge on the dealer, and Cage is there, and they shoot the guy, and what happens? His soul's still dancing. Pick it up.
Shoot him again. What fool? His soul's still dancing. <laughs> That's right. There is a break dancer doing break dancing moves in the middle of the room where the guy has been shot. Yeah, and I'm not sure if that's the same guy who was playing the thug. Um, I'm kind of hoping that it is. It would be great if he was cast and they said, do you know anything about breakdancing? But maybe, maybe not. It could have been a stunt breakdancer. It could have been, you know, Hawk from the whatever crew that I see on You Think So You Think You Can Dance. But yeah, awesome, awesome breaking going on. And it's one of those just insane flourishes like the iguana that... Sometimes I wish the movie actually had more of them, so it would almost feel more of a piece. But um, the ones that, that are there are so unique and so great and so interesting that I, I, I almost don't want to change any of it. And as he's breakdancing, the music is familiar to me because I've seen so many Herzog films. And I'm like, what is that? I'm like, what is that harmonica piece? What is, you know, what am I hearing and where is that from within another film? And Herzog used this piece by Sonny Terry called Old Lost John in Strozhek. So have you seen Strozhek? I haven't seen Strozhek. Okay. So Strozhek is a film that he did in 77, shot in Wisconsin with Bruno S., which next to uh, Klaus Kinski is probably the most recognizable person that comes back in his films and Bruno S was the schizophrenic patient in Germany and he worked with him in a couple of films uh, Enigma Casper Hauser and Stroschek mostly and what the film is about is these Germans who are not doing very well in the old country so they decide to go move in with a cousin in America and like live the American dream that they think they're going to have by coming to America and it's just a nightmare and at the end of the film there's this whole sort of um, breakdown scene with Bruno S and he goes to this sort of uh, sideshow carnival on the side of the road. And there's this dancing chicken in a box where you put like a quarter in and it like dances and there's a real chicken in the scene. And this piece of music is playing. So thinking about the use in Strozhek versus the use here is kind of interesting that both scenes include dancing in some manner. Now, you said it was a real chicken. Was it a real dance? Uh, I believe it was a real chicken dance. Excellent. I do that usually at weddings. You see, that's where most people do it. So we have this breakdancing um breakdancing soul scene and the first time i saw it and every time since i'm just i'm just filled with so much joy at this guy's death i don't know i know that sounds odd but uh it's true i actually have to say that one makes me laugh but what makes me laugh even more is yet to follow can i say what makes me laugh the most oh sure what makes me laugh the most comes up a few scenes later when Terrence is really kind of turning his life around, whether he knows it or not. And it's a scene that takes place at the police department. And first we have Brad Dourif coming in to tell him that his team had won, which he didn't realize that um, his team had won this big game and he had tried to set it up and all this stuff, but it wasn't going to work out, yada, yada. So Brad Dourif comes in. He's just like, oh, hey, my, my kid's 
parking ticket is taken care of and oh hey here's all your money from your game and then like immediately after he leaves these guys come up oh hey we we found the crack pipe and it's got big fate's dna on it this is great we're gonna you know incarcerate him now and i got no beef with you whatsoever everything between me and right is rain and i want you to know that my father got in touch with his guy and he told to let whoever it is know that that complaint has been withdrawn finished oh yeah okay Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> okay. That's the way out. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Look, Ned, if you'd called first, I would have saved you the trip. I, I don't have I'm guessing money. that you didn't see the game. How did this happen? <laughs> Louisiana by three. Hayes ended up playing? Nope. Worked out anyway. What are you talking about? Nothing. Oh, and my daughter's tickets, speeding tickets. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This female highway patrol officer calls up, says they're taken care of. <laughs> it's... <laughs> $10,000. Sure don't want to count it? I trust you. All right, man. You take care of yourself. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Great news. What? Armand came up with this at the crime scene on Josephine. I was, uh, just got lucky. Lab found Godshaw's DNA on it. <laughs> <laughs> huh? Huh? That, that is Yes! <laughs> and it's one thing after another after another where it's just like all of a sudden the clouds have broken and all is sunshine in the bad lieutenant's life in this one. It's just like all the horrible things that were going on suddenly turn around and it becomes like the most um, you know, like stereotypical ending of every sitcom ever where we have to wrap up every single storyline and everything is going to be fine by the end of the, of the show. And in this one, everything is going to be fine by the end of the movie. We find out that his, that Ava Mendes is pregnant and that she's, you know, just having this wonderful time and all of this stuff is going on within like the last like 10 minutes of the film and it just becomes like I'm surprised that the violins didn't come up and all this <laughs> stuff because it is just syrupy to beat the band this oh. is like Hong Kong level of melodrama suddenly injected into this film. And it's funny that you say Hong Kong level of melodrama because he gets two promotions within the film Yeah, and those promotions to me are shot like I don't know like like internal affairs or something. I mean, they're they're shot like a Hong Kong movie, like where you see all the cops lined up and they're getting the promotion. It's like it looks like somebody took that scene out of a Hong Kong movie and put it in here. It is such a lift. Yeah, it's totally like a, a better tomorrow when when you know Kip gets his his uh, badge and everything, and his brothers you know hanging out in the audience watching on and everything. Yeah, it is totally that kind of stuff. Everyone saluting and everything. <laughs> it was like, yeah, if they really felt like they were from. 
other movies just kind of thrown into this and it was like this is great you know and that's that's the part that makes me laugh every single time where it's just like everything just keeps piling up and piling up it's like you couldn't get a better day in Nicolas Cage's life in in Terrence uh Terrence McDonough's life now I don't know for sure but I heard that over that scene they were going to bring up that music from Ice Cube but I don't know if they were going to do that (laughs) today was a good day there you go that's the one thing I don't think that Jennifer Coolidge would ever cook the breakfast with hog. <laughs> and that was that that is actually the the scene that I was referring to because the first time that I saw the movie, I just as a as a movie watcher, I've been trained to see that scene in a movie that is sort of gritty and kind of dark. Um I was positive that that was going to be revealed as some sort of dream sequence or fantasy sequence, and he was going to snap out of it. He was going to get shot, you know, roll credits. And the fact that the movie just follows through on, like, the Wayne's World mega happy ending (laughs) is so crazy to me and so great. And I just love, you know, the way that it's sort of this commentary on, yeah, we could try and, you know, resolve all of these things, you know, point by point. But why not just have everyone show up at the police station and say, hey, that thing you were worried about? Yeah, don't worry about it. It all worked out. And, And the way that it, too... You know, this is a movie without any real order. You know, that's Herzog's big thing is that there's not necessarily order in the universe. So you try and save the drowning guy and you try and do a good thing and you get hurt and you end up a drug addict. And then you spend months as this strung out drug addict doing terrible things and pulling oxygen tubes out of old ladies' noses. And at the end, you're ultimately just rewarded for all of that and you get promoted and everything works out for you. It's it's so crazy, and I love it. You know what the other thing is that this movie reminds me of? A few times, there's one part where he breaks into this house, kind of sneaks in the back door, and um, brings out the... the um, suspect in handcuffs and everybody's just like hey yeah great job all this kind of stuff between that scene and the end that we're talking about him getting promoted and you know kind of riding off into the sunset a little bit even though there is a coda to the film that i find absolutely fascinating i'm really reminded of la confidential in those moments and i don't know if it's just because of those two scenes you know i'm thinking of like Bud White getting the girl. I guess Nicolas Cage's character in this reminds me a lot of Bud White from um, L.A. Confidential, the uh, Russell Crowe character. Um, you know, and he gets the girl, and he drives off into the sunset. But he's also kind of the Edmund Exley character, where he gets the promotion too. It's like both of those guys kind of combined, you know, into one character. Um, and then I think also the score in a lot of places kind of reminds me of that. Um, I think it was Jerry Goldsmith who did the score for um, um, L.A. Confidential, and I, I could totally be wrong on that. But it, it just kind of those things together reminded me of that. Did you guys? Did either of you guys feel that same way, or am I just completely on you know on the moon over here? L.A. Confidential has never come to mind when I've been watching this movie, but I could see the similarity that you're drawing. I mean, for me, it's about looking at it more through two lenses. First is, and we'll talk about this in a bit, the first Bad Lieutenant film, but also looking at it through the lens of someone who's seen quite a bit of Herzog movies and how this sort of plays against the other stuff he's done, like thematically or idea-wise. It's the most, I guess, quote-unquote mainstream of anything he's ever done, Uh, and that's just because he was a gun for hire instead of 
doing everything from the ground up like he did with all his other films. So there's this this element that really isn't 100% his, but it's done in his way, which is interesting. It's kind of like it's like when somebody does like a Beatles cover, but they don't do it like exactly like what's on the record. It's like, oh, that's him doing his version of it. And that's that's what makes the film interesting for me from the perspective of someone who really enjoys Werner Herzog. It's like if David Lynch had actually directed Revenge of the Jedi. Probably. That would be a much different film. Lynch plus Ewoks. That's all. I, I, my, <laughs> my brain is warped even thinking of that. I just keep picturing that Sarlacc pit looking a whole lot different, even more like a vagina than it is in the real film. And yet still played by Dennis Hopper. <laughs> he played the, the Sarlacc pit? He would have in the Lynch version. Okay. All right. I can see him still like doing an uncredited role f- for Return of the Jedi. Well, in, on Tatooine, everything is fine. There you go. (laughs) Nice. Let's take another break and play an interview from the screenwriter of Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans, William Finkelstein. It started out that... There was some interest in doing a TV series based on the first movie, on Abel's movie, Abel Ferrara's movie. And um, I'd worked with uh, Lionsgate, and I think they were involved, and Ed Pressman was involved, and we met, and we tried to sell it as a series, basically, and... Uh, we didn't have any takers. I went around the usual suspects, uh, networks, and so on, and uh, there wasn't any interest in doing it. I, I had a take on how I wanted to do it, which involved retaining certain aspects of the first movie and also, I guess, changing some and trying to reimagine it a little bit. Ed liked the direction, and when we weren't able to set it up as a series, I think he um, was still interested in in moving forward with it as a as a feature. So I wrote a script, which attracted the attention of uh, Nick Cage and Werner, and you know we were off to the races. So that's sort of the genesis of that of the the movie that that I uh, that I was involved with. I got to ask, what would a bad lieutenant TV show have been like? Well, you know, I, I think that it it's. I, I mean, I think that it could certainly have worked. Uh, you know, with TV, there's a, a kind of, I guess, uh, a, a a kind of. Um, uh, systemic reticence to put one's toe in the water. And this was prior to shows like Breaking Bad, where you had a protagonist who was not in all respects re- redeemed. 
I suspect that in a different climate, it would be possible to do a series, I'm not sure, but that that climate doesn't even exist now, that had a hero who was subject to all manner of addiction and compulsion and, and so on, but was nonetheless capable of functioning at his at his job. I can certainly envision what a series would have would have been like, but you know, timing's everything and at the at the time at which we were trying to uh mount it as a series that that it was just I think a little too uh rough around the edges for for um any of the networks including um cable. Now you've been writing for TV for gosh over 20 years now. Yes I have. How did you get in this business? Uh, you know, basically, Stephen Bochco read a play I wrote and hired me to do a freelance episode of L.A. Law in their first season and liked what I did and hired me to be a writer on that show, which is what happened uh, about halfway through the first season of the show. And uh, I guess I've been working ever since. Um on the you know any num- a number of different series, some of which I did with Steven, some with with, with not with Steven, but but you know that was my start. I have to say I loved L.A. Law. Well, thanks. It was a wonderful experience. Uh, you know, I, I think I had the benefit of of working with a producer who was who's both a truly uh, gifted storyteller, but also one who fosters uh, writers. And, um, you know, that that's, it's not uh, a coincidence that uh, David Kelly and, and David Milch and, and, and myself, you know, all kind of were, you know, weaned in that, uh, in that same environment. Cause I think Steven's gift is very much the nurturing and, um, development of, of writers. And, uh, so, you know, I, I was a happy beneficiary of that. It's so unusual for, you know, movies to go to TV, TV to go to movies. And then just this kind of strange path that bad Lieutenant movie to almost TV and then to movie, how did it change from what you had in your mind to what it en- ended up being Port of Call New Orleans? Well, I think that in some respects, it didn't change uh, in the sense that I felt that the genesis of a cop's addiction needed to be dramatized to some extent, needed to be dramatized rather than implicit, which, you know, you always run the risk that you're going to create too uh, facile and kind of mechanistic uh, uh, causal connection. And, you know, I worked not to have that be the case. And Nick Cage is certainly an actor who would not have allowed that to be the case. So, so in, in that respect, I think that that was something that I had envisioned in the series and was realized in the movie. I think that in Abel Ferrara's movie, there was, a, I think, a lot of religious presence. There was a lot of the uh, uh, Keitel's relationship to the nun and to the church was was very much a thematic part of that of that movie. It, it was not a part of of the movie I wrote. Uh, you know, not not because I didn't think it was a good thing in, in that movie, but because I think when you're going 
going to do something like this where you're taking a central character from one movie and moving him to another movie. You don't want to, in lockstep, replicate absolutely everything. Certain things felt to me to be primary. His being a, you know, a gambler and a, a, an, an addict to gambling was one. Being an addict to drugs was another. But I didn't want to read to redo Abel's movie. Uh, you know, I wanted to take that character of the bad lieutenant and put him in a different environment. I knew he was going to be played by a different actor, and I think that it it allowed for a, a you know a reinvention. You know, when they do the James Bond movies, the character of James Bond is sort of more or less consistent throughout. But this was a different deal. And, uh, you know, there needed to be enough variation. So it didn't feel as though, well, this is the first one, except it's not the first one. Uh, you know, you take what you feel you need and you leave the rest. And, and, uh, and, and then you, you also, I think the, one of the other things was that initially I set the movie in New York because of various things having to do with budget and, uh, and so on. <clears throat> there was a desire to transpose it to New Orleans. So that was different, but not that different. There were certain things that, that you know, uh, we had alter and, and I, I went down and, and we wrote, I rode around the city with, with Werner and Ed and kind of picked other spots and certain scenes were transposed and so forth. And Werner's a different director. You know, that's the other thing is that uh, I don't think that we would have done ourselves any favors by not letting Werner make Werner's movie because, you know, he's a brilliant director. And, and when you hire him, that's what you hire him for. Did you have iguanas in your script? No, that, no, that was a, that was a pure Herzog touch. Uh, I, I, I didn't have a, a solitary uh, reptile anywhere in the, in the script I wrote. And, um, Werner provided them, provided the inspiration for them. And, uh, I've, you know, from where I sit happily. So, so over the years, obviously you've kind of taken other people's characters, you know, kind of jumping into shows or you've had to work within the constraints of having these characters and like a show Bible and that kind of stuff. How does that compare? And obviously with bad Lieutenant, you kind of had that, but not necessarily you were given, you know, you gave yourself a little bit more free range. How does that compare to something where you're just creating stuff from scratch completely? You know, it depends on the constraints you're under. Um, I, I suppose when when you're working within a very kind of rigid universe where characters may not do certain things or you may not portray certain aspects of a character's life or behavior, then, you know, you have to honor that. And, and so, you know, you're precluded from working that into your writing. Uh, for the most part, I've been fortunate in not being 
overly constrained. Uh, you know, I came on to L.A. Law halfway through the first season. So while they had characters, this it was still a show that was being in, invented in certain ways. Uh, uh, and, and I think also, you know, Stephen's inclination, while it was to, uh, you know, he certainly had ideas about what his people, what his characters would and would not do or what they were. I mean, they were all lawyers, uh, you know, and, and so on. But, but, you know, we went home with them. We knew about their personal lives or, or to a, to a large extent we did, uh, you know, you were able to think your way into those, into who those people were. And sometimes things would occur to you that, well, maybe they would do this, or maybe they would have this sort of a, a, a family member, you know, when you bring in a, a father or a, or, a, or or somebody like that. So, I, I mean, I think that what I, I've been fortunate about is, is to sort of have some flexibility with that. And, you know, that's been good uh, so that I haven't had to, you know, I've never written a Bond movie, so I, I don't have like the James Bond character. If I were to, then obviously you honor that. I, you know, obviously you're not coming into the James Bond franchise and suddenly, you know, making him a, a guy who always wanted to be a classical musician or something. You know, you're sort of honoring what is there if 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 you're signing on for that for the most part i i haven't you know i i i haven't had to do that <clears throat> so i've been able to invent stuff and and i've been able to even where they're pre-existing characters I mean, I, well, you know, I did uh, a season of NYPD Blue, and 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 you know that was a that was a case where it was the last season of the show, and, and you know those characters were very much uh, defined, and so what it was incumbent upon me to do was to understand them and understand what was there, and you know those were characters that there was a lot there. Uh, there, there was a lot that had been played. Uh, you know, uh, Dennis Franz is an actor who conveyed a, 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 a lot of internal life. And so, you know, you, you, you kind of look at that character and, and, uh, you know, there's a hell of a lot to work with. Has this whole move of, uh, really powerful uh, dramas and just kind of addictive television and stuff. Has that affected you? Have you made the move over to cable? Well, not, you know, uh, I mean, you know, each project is kind of its own sort of indicates its own direction. And, uh, you know, right now um, I don't have anything on cable, um, I, I, but, but I certainly, I feel like right now, you know, it's, the, where you put on the show that if you have an idea of what the show is that you want to do, wherever they are hospitable to that idea is where you should go. I, I, you know, I don't think it makes any difference. I, I mean, I, I think that it doesn't matter whether you do a show on, uh, uh, you know, a broadcast, you know, ABC, NBC, or cable, or any of the other platforms, uh, Netflix, Amazon, uh, uh, you know, they, they are multiplying. And I think that 
it's less important to me where the show, I mean, you want the show to be seen, but there's so many ways in which shows can be seen now. You, you can do a show for a relatively obscure uh, network, temporarily obscure network. Maybe it's just starting up or, or whatever it is. If the show catches fire, it, then it's all over the place. So, I, I you know, to me, I, it doesn't make any difference. I think there's, there's the, those are more distinctions that are, uh, I think, becoming increasingly vestigial. You know, I, I think that obviously there are differences. It's different working where you've got commercial sponsors where, than where you don't in terms of, you know, the kinds of uh, what you can portray, what kind of uh, uh, limits, uh, you know, you're under. Uh, what kind of constraints you're under, but but you know I've never found that to be uh, uh, that much of a defining characteristic of anything I do. You know, can I can I say fuck? Can I say fuck? I mean, I'd like to be able to say it if the should, you know. But I'd like to have more. The more freedom I'm given, the happier I am. But ultimately, I don't think that those are critical distinctions. And so I would say the uh, you know the idea is to just kind of you know define the show that you want to do and 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 you know in, in inevitably right now what i what i have in mind to do probably is more suited to cable than it is to broadcast so uh you know that's that is kind of where i'm i'm headed i can totally see your point i guess like a madman would would fit just as easily on abc and then nypd blue was pushing the, that envelope and, you know, could have just as easily have been on yeah. an FX or something had that existed at the yeah, time. I think that's true. I mean, I, I think that, that, uh, cable tends to be more or, or tries harder at a, a kind of, uh, identity, uh, uh, branding themselves with certain identities. How much of that is a conceit and how much of that is real, I, you know, that's for uh, others to judge. If, you know, Mad Men is, is on AMC, the, there's very little likelihood that uh, uh, Showtime is going to do a show about an ad agency in the 60s, as opposed to broadcast where you have seen, you know, season after season, CBS has a hospital show at the same time as NBC has a hospital show. Uh, they go head to head on, on in, in similar territory. Cable tends not to do that. You know, there's certain differences, which I think are also starting to fall by the wayside with, in broadcast, you know, it was a 22 episode season. So you tended to get actors who were willing to sign on for a long tour of duty, not just 22 for the season, but a five-year commitment. Cable tends not to do that. They tend to do, you know, I'm sure uh, McConaughey and, and Woody Harrelson uh, doing True Detective, you know, that's like 10 and out. And they got them, and that's a lot of the marketing of that series is that they got them. So there are certain flexibilities that have been on cable that haven't been on broadcast, but broadcast is starting to come around. I think Ashley Judd did a series on ABC that she just uh, did 10 of and that's and they got her and they did 10 and that was that so i suspect that there's going to be some more variation in the way broadcast puts those shows up 
Did you have anything to do with Diana Muldaur falling down an elevator shaft? No, that was that was all David Kell. I don't think I was on the show at that point, actually. I think that was when I left um, after the fourth season to cre- co-create a little viewed show called Cop Rock with, with Stephen Bochco. And then I did a series that I created called Civil Wars with Marielle Hemingway for two seasons. So the Diana falling down the, the elevator shaft and a number of other um, memorable moments uh, were not ones that I, I could claim any uh, authorship of. And my last question for you is, what are you working on now? Uh, you know, I finished a, a pilot that uh, we're starting to expose to the town, and uh, I, I have a, a there's a movie I'm I'm starting to work on, and you know, I I, I keep pretty busy, so uh, in you know feature and in in television, big screen and small screen. Thanks to William Finkelstein for coming on the show. You can find out more about the films we're talking about this week, Bad Lieutenant and The Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, and our website, projection-booth.com. Now, we did talk a little bit about both. That's kind of an understatement. So, gents, uh, what do you think in terms of uh, where they meet up and where they diverge, Bad Lieutenant, The Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, and since you're our guest... Patrick, we'll start with you. Um, I mean, I certainly kind of prefer one over the other, and I'm fascinated by the idea that, that Port of Call New Orleans is not a remake, because I understand that they diverge in many ways, but I think in a lot of ways, I mean, there's certain beats that are almost identical with some some tweaks that really kind of change the tone of the movie, and I feel like Port of Call New Orleans is played much more as kind of a, a comedy, um, and as a character study, I feel like you know, Bad Lieutenant, the Ferraro version, it, you know, Harvey Keitel is a man to be loathed and ultimately pitied. Um, whereas I feel like Terrence McDonough never really becomes a monster. He's a drug addict and he behaves badly because it's in his name. He's the Bad Lieutenant. Um, but I don't think he ever becomes the monster that Keitel becomes. I like that there are, it's almost like there are echoes from one film to another. It's not a remake. It's, I mean, I guess in this hackneyed uh, world that we live in, this would almost be like a reimagining of Bad Lieutenant from the one film to the other because we have these kind of similarities: the the gambling, the drug use, um, you know, the case that is kind of obsessing our main character. The loose morals, the woman on the side, this whole idea. Well, actually, it's not a woman on the side for Cage. He just has the one girlfriend. But it's just like there are these weird moments where the two films will coincide, but they are just played so differently. And for me, I think the biggest difference is what we talked about so much when we were talking about Bad Lieutenant, the Abel Ferrara film, is the whole idea that Catholicism and the idea of the redemption and all this, there's no religious angle really going on in uh, Port of Call New Orleans. At least it's not wearing itself on its sleeve like it was in uh, the Bad Lieutenant 1992 and I think that that's such a major part of 
that Ferrara film and of Ferrara's filmography that without it, the whole film does do this major shift in tone and in theme. So I, without the, the Catholic angle to it, it does become this other thing, whether it's played straight, whether it's played for laughs, whether it's played, you know, dark and gritty. Um, I definitely see that Pocono is a lighter film as far as that goes, but it does have a lot of dark moments in it too. It's interesting that you bring up the, the Catholicism and the redemption angle with this and both Abel Farrar and Werner Herzog are Catholics. In interviews, like Herzog will talk about this, you know, he is of the faith and things like that. But I think that this is sort of maybe the 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 divergence between what we would call like American, you know, kind of in your face religiosity versus this sort of more of a European sensibility where it's yeah, it's sort of this holistic, yeah, it's part of us, but it's not you don't have to do all these rituals and everything. And I think maybe that's really what it is for Herzog, because in a lot of ways, I think that this one actually, without having you know the nun and, and all of that, and then all of the discussion that, that Keitel's character has about about the church, without having Jesus actually getting down off the cross. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Cage's character in the end of the film, where he is now saved by the guy that he saved because he jumped in to save the, the the guy in the jail cell, and in the end, when he's like at his lowest point, this guy f- stumbles on his path. Are you all right? Sometimes I have bad days. Listen, you saved my life. I'm almost done working. I'm going to get you out of here, okay? Okay? And they're in that, it looks like SeaWorld or a bar or something with like a big, you know, fish aquarium thing and they're sitting there. Is you get the feeling that this is a much more person to person redemption, that he saved him, but he really didn't really think too much about it. It was just whatever, it's just guy's gonna drown down there. But now that he's sort of drowning in his own personal wake that he's created for himself, this person that he saved before has now come back to give him the lift that he now needs. And I think that probably is, because it's not tied to a specific faith tradition that way, I think people would read that as a much more like spiritual ending or something, or a human ending where someone reaches out to help another person. So that's why I think this film has a much more personal redemptive aspect for that character because we get the idea that Cage's day after this, his character, will be better. The next day will be better, as opposed to Kaitel's character, where it's not going to be better because he's dead. Yeah, because we get that whole sunshine and flowers thing that I was talking about earlier, but then we also do get him doing the exact same thing from one scene to another. We have him shaking down this couple who are in a club, so it seems like he is going to go down that path again, that he is still this bad lieutenant. But you're right, that end scene with the guy who he had saved, I think, does really become the ultimate you know change in the film and it can even say to us that what we just saw with him um shaking down the couple is not necessarily where he's going to go after this moment after he's sitting there in front of that aquarium and after that final laugh that he does before we go to black I totally agree that it, that it's implied that he's sort of on the path to healing, maybe not just from addiction, but also kind of internally, spiritually. And unlike 
the Ferrara version where I said, you know, where it's kind of all for nothing. He's just shot in the street and we feel nothing about it. In this movie, he sort of gets to see the results of his selfless act. He gets to see that, oh, this person I saved has now turned his life around and has become, you know, a, a functioning, productive member of society who has good in his heart and is going to reach out and help me. And so he knows that it's this, you know, this destructive, dark path he's been down hasn't been for nothing the way that it was in the Ferrara version. And I'm much more likely to relate to Terrence McDonough. I mean, first off, he has a name, which makes it a little bit easier to relate to a character. But he doesn't get into the depths that I've seen the Kaitel character get into. And Kaitel, even though he's bearing it all, literally, I'm still not necessarily able to empathize with him as much as I probably should. Um, He does seem to keep me at a distance because he is so wrapped up inside of himself, where I think that be it Keitel's performance or Cage's performance or just the characters and the way that they're drawn, I am drawn more into the McDonough character and I can empathize with him a lot more even though he's doing these horrible, horrible things, I can see, and probably they're not nearly as horrible as what um, the lieutenant was doing in the Ferrara film, but I can definitely put myself in the McDonough's shoes a lot easier than I can into the lieutenant's shoes, the Keitel lieutenant. The scene for me that sort of makes the, the biggest distinction between the two is there's the echo of the scene in the Ferrara version where he stops the two girls driving without a license. And, um, and that whole thing goes down where the girls have to pretend to simulate oral sex and he masturbates and it's awful. It's a sexual assault, a violation in every way. Show me how you suck a guy's cock. You hear me? Show me how you suck a guy. Just turn around. Show me how you suck a guy's cock. I'm fucking serious. Show me how you suck a guy's cock. The last time I'm going to ask you, I'm taking you in, you hear me? Show me how you suck a guy's cock. Show me with your mouth. Show me with your mouth. Come on, spit that gum out. Give me the gum. Give me the fucking gum. And in this movie, the woman outside the club sort of becomes the aggressor, or it seems, on the surface anyway, to be more consensual. And and I feel like, in a way, this movie lets its bad lieutenant off the hook in a way that the Ferrara version doesn't. Mm. Yeah. Worry about you. Your father funny now? No. Oh, what about your mother? I don't give a shit about either one of them. Uh, they beat you? No. Uh, molest you? No. Uh, didn't buy you new clothes or back to school, huh? Mm-hmm. Huh? Huh? Didn't see you in the high school play, huh? Huh? Uh, I wonder what they said if they saw you now. Huh? Yeah. Smoking crack. Uh, mm-hmm. Going out with no. I bet they think about you when you were a little girl. Uh, I wonder how it all happened, yeah? Uh, 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 Fucking mother! You stand there and you watch! You watch her! Yeah. You watch your fucking girlfriend! Yeah, I can totally see that. She definitely has no problem 
reaching in into his pants and getting him out rather than it being Kaitel. Um, I mean, that is the, the, the Kaitel scene, the Ferrara scene, that is one of those moments that just sticks with you for, you know, 22 years after seeing the film originally It's great, great scene. I will not take anything away from it, but I definitely see what you're saying as far as the, the bad Lieutenant protocol, New Orleans, and the more times I say that, the faster I can probably say that. Um, in Bad Lieutenant Port of Carl, New Orleans, you definitely have more of a consensual kind of thing going on, even though it starts off as a violation, but you have this um, more consent going on, and she seems to be really getting into it. I felt a lot more comfortable with it. Sometimes I don't like to feel comfortable when I'm watching scenes on film, so I like that Ferrara is able to push those buttons and make me you know feel very squeamish in the first one but i also like the way that it's handled in the second one so really i kind of am getting my cake and eating it too by having both of these versions of this lieutenant character out in the world for me to enjoy and i think ultimately that's what i like about this uh the the 2009 film is that it does stand so separate from the Ferrara film, so it doesn't feel like it's a ripoff. It doesn't feel like it's a remake. They are very much entities unto themselves. And I think part of what builds that, you know, we were talking about being able to watch him even though he's doing this horrible stuff, that in a way, I almost see the McDonough character, Cage's character, almost like the Joker, in that he's doing it with a smile, he's got this sense of humor, he's very gregarious, things like that, but he's doing bad shit. But we want to watch him, and we want to engage with him for some reason, even though he's doing all this bad stuff. Yeah, in the Ferrara version, it's almost like watching Harvey Keitel is like watching a train wreck, and you're just you know it's going to end badly, and you can just stand on the side and watch him self destruct. And maybe this is just me, but when I watch the Herzog version, I sort of I want what's best for Nicholas Cage. Like I want him to succeed. I want him to solve the case. And hey, kick that drug habit. I'm sort of on his side in a way that I'm not at all in the Ferrara version. And I have to say the Ferrara version, and this is this is going to sound like an insult, but it's actually very much a uh, me praising it. It is so scuzzy. I mean, the cinematography, everything about the film is just so scuzzy. It is such a portrait of that time in New York and just capturing when, you know, it was still dangerous to go into Alphabet City, when you would walk down the street and hear the crack files crunching underneath your heels. And I love that about it. But that's another reason why the film is is difficult to kind of get into in that way, because you're right. It's kind of, it's almost like a, I don't know, like a slow motion snuff movie or something where we're just watching this character just diving deeper and deeper. And when we think that he can't get any worse, he goes and does one more thing that's bad and then does another thing on top of that just for good measure. So you're right. I do pull for uh, Terrence McDonough much more um, than I do the other character. Not to say that, one is necessarily even better than the other. I just definitely have a, a totally different experience with uh, both films, and, and I kind of appreciate for that. Have we actually gone 163 episodes, Rob, without talking about Nicolas Cage? Is this our first Nicolas Cage movie together? Yes, this is our first Nicolas Cage movie. Wow. That is something. Yeah. 
because there's a lot of them out there. And of course, we would love to have him on. Maybe uh, when you finally get around to doing that whole uh, Christian Apocalypse movies, we can get him to come on and talk about the uh, latest filmies in that Left Behind series. That would be awesome. What do you guys think about the way that Cage uses his voice in this film? All right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep him. Well, no, I got to answer to Duffy for that. I'll answer to him. Well, I mean, he's a doofus, but he's not a bad guy. Fuck Duffy. Just fuck him. Fuck all of them. Because for me, there's a point where he seems to change his voice, and I have yet to really nail down when that is or why he does that. It's all here? Okay. He ordered 5000 There's 10 and change here. Why don't I give you this? Call it a day. We could do that. Alternatively, I could tell Jeffy to shoot the dog. You want me to shoot the fucking dog? Or put my calling card on this gorgeous punum here. Look, I don't give a shit about the dog. But you mark her up, I'm going to have a tough time getting you your money. By my money, you mean $50,000. I'll need a couple of days. And by a couple, you mean two? Yeah. Good. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I'm trying to figure out what scene or what place. Because the thing that's interesting to me is that it takes place in New Orleans, but nobody has one of those New Orleans accents. Yeah, I'm kind of glad they didn't do like, you know, oh, we got to bring in uh, Harry. um, Oh, fuck. What's that guy's name? (laughs) Harry. I'm so glad that they didn't do the stunt casting and brought in like Harry Connick Jr. Just to have like a, you know, a real Cajun voice in there. So I'm glled that they did that too, Rob, that it's all just Midwestern, whatever F U accents, which is what you get week in week out on the projection booth, Midwestern F U accents. (laughs) For a long time, Nicholas Cage was kind of my favorite actor. And this is before maybe he jumped ship and started making Michael Bay movies and stuff. But I, he wasn't always good in movies, but I loved that he always kind of swung for the fences and made crazy choices. Um, and then he got lazy, and then he owned an island, and he had to pay for it, and he just makes a lot of bad movies, and he tends to be bad in them. And then every once in a while, every couple of years, he'll make a movie that reminds you, oh, right, Nicolas Cage has the potential to be great. And this I, I, is definitely one of his... Uh, one of the Nicolas Cage is great movies. You know what? I have to go back on what I just said before. You, I don't think you were on this episode, Rob, and that's probably why you weren't remembering this, but we did cover on this podcast Red Rock West before. So there is that. I mean, because it was part of the last seduction episode, and I know that uh, that was Krista Faust was on that one. And yeah, we talked a lot about Red Rock West. So this is not my first Nicolas Cage rodeo when it comes to him on the projection booth. But I think we're definitely giving him a lot more love and attention in this one. Um, not nearly as much as he deserves. I mean, you could probably do a podcast a week on Nicolas Cage movies. And that might be something good to think about for like 2016, just every week. And the way that he's turning out movies... We could probably just start with his latest and then just kind of catch up from there. We're in the cage in the projection. <laughs> <laughs> Nicholas Cage match. Yes. Do, you like, uh, do you like Cage Cast or Pod Cage better? Oh, I think Cage Cast. Yeah, Cage Cast. Yeah. If you use that, please send a check to Patrick, care of F This Movie Podcast. <laughs> Did you guys know that National Treasure 3 has been announced? Thank goodness. I know you're worried about Ben Gates, but he'll be back in another national treasure adventure. 
our forefathers were so busy hiding shit. How did they ever get anything done? <laughs> that was Benjamin Franklin. He just had one job. He's like, I'll do this book of philosophy. I'll go over to France and I'll hide all kinds of crazy shit around here. You know what's amazing about the National Treasure movies? What's that? None of them are truly a national treasure. <laughs> That's true. One thing I wanted to add into this section, and it's just too cool not to talk about, and we should share this on our website, projection-booth.com, is a a listener, friend of ours on Facebook, David Lambert, is a great artist. I mean, guy can just do some amazing drawings. And he did a drawing of Cage from Bad Lieutenant Protocol New Orleans. And he went to a screening that both Nicolas Cage and Werner Herzog were at, and he was able to give it to him. And there's this great photo of just the two of them beaming on stage as they hold up this amazing uh, drawing that David Lambert has done. So I just wanted to give a shout out to that because it's uh, it's really cool. Yeah, and if you need an excuse to come by our website and, and um, ever, this is the reason because this drawing that he did is just incredible to see and i'm not even going to try to describe it but i will say that there are iguanas involved there you go so we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show you get spotted before the hit the contract's off you understand me Yeah, I understand you. You're going to be party to an attempt to kill a man. This is the asphalt jungle. This is New York City. With its fancy women and fancy hoodlums. With its very special beat. Its very special places. Its hunters and hunted. And you will walk side by side with Frankie Bono as he stalks his prey, knowing what is in his mind, feeling what is in his heart. And your hands will sweat with his fear. Your pulse will pound with his desire. Frankie, no! You're going to have to be game, Frank. Hey, you're going to have to pay luxury prices, boy. I'll pay you nothing. And even as he prepares to unleash his blast of silence, you will discover that you and Frankie Bono are playing the most dangerous game in the world. right we're back next week and we're looking at the low budget noir classic blast of silence so be here and um get ready to be blasted by silence although you'll find out why i didn't find it all that quiet anyway thanks again to edward pressman and william finkelstein for coming on and taking the time to talk to us about a bad lieutenant and the bad lieutenant port of call new orleans and also want to thank patrick for stopping by to be our special guest host and why don't you tell folks about your show and what's the latest with you sir sure i uh host a podcast that comes out every week called f this movie which you can find in the itunes store or you can find our website at fthismovie.net. Um, it's a weekly podcast, but we have content every day. And uh, you can always follow me on Twitter. I'm at Patrick Bromley. And I just want to say thank you guys so much for having me on the show. This was a huge honor. I'm a big fan. Now, when it comes to F This Movie, does that stand for Film This Movie? Uh, fiddlesticks. 
fiddlesticks this movie. Yeah. That, okay, I've been confused about this the, this whole and time. And I'm glad I was able to clear it up. Thank you. I'm glad that we had you on the show just for that. Thank you so much, Patrick, for coming on. It has been a real pleasure talking to you. And I do highly recommend that folks go over and check out F This Movie. There's some great discussions. And I will say that I even listened to the F This Movie episode about the Grand Budapest Hotel, even though you guys know how I feel about Wes Anderson. But the important thing was the good conversation, good rapport, and insightful look at Wes Anderson and this latest film of his. So it was worth my while to listen and it's going to be worth your while to check that out as well. So thank you for listening to the projection booth. Please return the favor by leaving a review on iTunes, commenting on our website, projection booth.com and sharing your favorites on Facebook, Twitter, or any other means of social media or not. You could hire a skywriter and put that up there and say, which episode is your favorite it might be a little expensive and it might not last that long, but Hey, it really means a lot.
just let me love again Oh, let me love again I, I said I found a new love day Oh, let me tell you about it right now I'll always say I'll always, I'll always want that girl right near. Oh, let me tell you how sweet she is. Oh, yeah. Oh, baby, her lips, you get that? Her lips are warm while yours are cold. They're so doggone cold. I wonder what's the matter, baby. But girl, girl, release me If you don't want me If you're just trying to use me Why don't you just, why don't you just Why don't you just let me go Maybe to hear what I say at that time Baby, I want to say it one more time there in 10 minutes. Tell him I'm on my way. Tell him if he puts his hands on this guy, he's going to have a problem. I don't give a shit, Armand. You tell him to take a fucking break. She crazy. They don't care. Excuse me, could you tell me how much longer that's going to be? You just... Hello, miss. I'm a lieutenant in the police department. I'm in the middle of a homicide investigation. Can I get my prescription, please? Do you see I'm on the phone? Hey, you can't come back here. You got me waiting 30 minutes so you can make a fuck personal phone call. Yeah, be back. Security, security to pharmacy, security to pharmacy, please. This is it. This is it. Come on, guy. Please come emergency. On. This is it. You know, cop. What's that look like? Then why are you acting all crazy for? This is uh, $23 with my copay, right? Here's 40. Get everybody a drink. Get the fuck out of my way. 